0: Welcome to the A Jesus Church Podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. We're all in process, becoming something. Like a potter throwing clay or an artist mixing color, our lives are being formed. Different backgrounds and experiences blemished and cracked. Each day, an opportunity to move into or out of all that God has purposed. So the question isn't if we are becoming, but rather who are we becoming? And in this family, we want to go on the journey
1: Okay, well good morning. Welcome, we're really glad you're here. My name's Richard, I'm one of the pastors, and uh, really excited to continue our Becoming Like Jesus series. Um, We are in Luke chapter 9 today. If you have a Bible, open up so you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, wave your hand in the air, there's no shame, someone will hand you one. And if you don't have a Bible, please keep it, take it home and read it, that's for you. And um, hopefully, you've also been reading along with us in this series. It's going to make a lot more sense. You get the whole of the journey if you're reading through Luke with us. If you want to know where we're reading each week, you can grab one of the cards on the way out or check the website. And so it's the second half of chapter 9. Last week, we were in the beginning of chapter 9. And Jesus gave us this paradigm-altering challenge about life and discipleship. A key verse in there, verse 23 and 24, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. So Jesus has this upside down, back to front view of life, so different to our cultures. He says, What makes life great is not more, but actually less. Fulfillment in life is found in spending life, not in hoarding life. And more than just that, the way we're supposed to spend our life is in a cross-shaped way. Because that's what actually tunes us in to God's radical love. And Shelby focused in on one of the great threats to this Jesus-shaped way of life, which is the lie that having more makes us more. And and Jesus actually, he he focused in on this in uh, the next verse... In Luke nine, he said, "What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, and yet lose or forfeit their very self?" And so the call to us was the simplicity of possessions. That's how we can be a countercultural Jesus movement and actually embody Jesus's values and act differently. And I hope this week you've spent time, like in your community, processing, praying, unpacking. And, and trying to figure out how Jesus might have you step into that simplicity to try it on for size and see how God meets you there. This week, the simplicity theme is gonna continue. In the rest of Luke 9, Jesus is gonna examine the discipleship, uh, sorry, the disciples relationship with power and priorities. And there's, it turns out one priority that is essential that we need to wrap our lives around and all others pale. Um, compared to it. So let's read, Uh, would you stand with me? We're going to read the end of the chapter here, verse 57 onwards, and we stand for the word of God to elevate our respect for wanting to hear from God. And so it says this, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens, the birds have nests, but the son of man, in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word that you have inspired this. This is breathed out by you because you want to speak to us. And we wanna be the kind of people that hear what you have to say. We want to be aligned to your voice. And so would you just clear away any clutter in our minds, in our hearts? Anything maybe like is distracting, weighing on us so that we can just entrust to you for a little while and say, I just want to hear what you have to say. I want to sit at your feet and tune into you. And Holy Spirit, come, reveal the truth to our hearts and show us how to respond to you today. Amen. Okay, well, grab a seat. So, throughout Luke chapter 9, the Spirit is showing Luke a contrast between Jesus and what he's like and the disciples and what they're like. And I want us to tune into that pattern because it's really revealing about why this issue of simplicity matters so much. So we're going to sort of skip a stone through here, some of, some of what's going on. First up, we have the transfiguration. This amazing moment where Jesus shines with divine glory on the top of a mountain, meeting with Moses and Elijah. And there is so much we could talk about here. But that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. But it is what we had a long conversation about on the House of Learning podcast. So if you want to get your transfiguration fix, go listen to that, which supports the reading for this week. Um, So Moses and Elijah are meeting with Jesus to strengthen him for the increasing hardships of his mission as he sets himself to go to Jerusalem where he's going to die. And Peter, James and John, there's three inner circle of disciples are with Jesus, but they misunderstand the moment. They misunderstand what it's for. They want to linger and remain there. But this moment is about sending and going. And so they get it completely back to front. And then a cloud comes over, just like at Jesus's baptism and the voice of the Father from heaven, it it refocuses them and says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him this call, like, follow him. Well, they come down to the mountain, and the disciples and Jesus, uh, they, they find the rest of the disciples and a man who's been begging the disciples to heal his son by casting out a demon. Uh, and this is something the disciples have been doing since a chapter ago, however long that was, a few weeks, we don't know. But Jesus commissioned them to go heal and cast out demons. So they've been all about this work, but they can't do it. They're stuck, like something isn't working. And Matthew and Mark's gospels make clear that there was a problem with prayer and faith. So something was going wrong with the disciples. And Jesus actually says to them in verse 41, how long must I bear with you? So they're like, they're lagging behind Jesus. Jesus is having to like slow his pace, turn round, because they're not where they're supposed to be. And Jesus heals the boy. Everyone's amazed and faith is stirred. But it's really interesting what happens next because in that moment of of being stirred and being excited, Jesus talks to the disciples about what lies ahead in his journey. Because it seems the disciples maybe were stirred to expect the wrong kind of power or the wrong kind of mission. And Jesus corrects them and he says, hey, what's coming is death. I'm going to die. And the disciples have a complete failure of understanding. There is no room in their box for how death could be a part of God's plan. It's as if they've completely blanked about what Jesus just said about taking up your cross. Probably they hadn't really understood it yet. So, so something is not clicking, something's not working. No sooner has Jesus pulled them back from the way of power to the way of sacrifice, than he finds them arguing about who's the greatest. I mean, come on, guys. This is like, this is awful. And and so they're, they're having an argument, not seeking to lose their life, but to be great. It's like the antithesis of what Jesus is trying to teach them. And so Jesus takes a child, really great that we had the kids up on stage this morning. Jesus takes a child, someone... Who, who is a young child. And in Jewish culture, it wasn't even worth giving the time of day to a small child. No value in it. Until they reach a certain age, they don't kind of qualify as someone it's even worth interacting with. So Jesus takes the most unworthy, sets them in the midst, and he says, hey, someone who receives a small child in my name is receiving me and the father who sent me. What makes one great? Not what you guys think. Your ideas of greatness are mixed up. Your priorities are different to God's. And hot on the heels of this lesson, the issue of exclusivity comes up. So they want to ban other people doing miracles in Jesus' name. It's as if the power and authority Jesus has given them, they feel like should be theirs alone. Like we're special, we're great, right? I want to protect my privileges. And Jesus corrects their view. He says, hey, someone you don't know casting out demons in my name is not an adversary, but an ally. Your attitude's back to front. Instead of being frustrated, you should be glad right now. You should be happy and rejoicing right now. Their response is completely wrong. And last of all, there's an object lesson in dealing with rejection. See, Jesus at this point, he knows what his focus is. He's starting to be like, okay, I'm I'm going over there to Jerusalem. And so he travels through this village and they clock like, hmm, you're not really visiting us like you used to visit the other villages. You're just passing through. And they're kind of upset about that. And the disciples catch maybe a whiff of dishonor to Jesus in in their response. And so what do they think? You want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them all? Jesus actually has to rebuke them and tell them off. Like, no, guys, you've completely misunderstood what your attitude should be And what's going on? They've misread the situation. So there's a pattern building. You catch the contrast between Jesus and the disciples. I mean, it's going pretty horrifically wrong. Jesus is all about losing his life. The disciples, they keep wanting to protect the things of life, to gain more life. Jesus is focused on his mission. The disciples keep being distracted from the mission. Jesus, he keeps knowing what's going on. He sees clearly the situation. He understands the situation. The disciples, they keep misunderstanding. They keep misconstruing the situation. They get the wrong end of the stick. And Jesus keeps doing the right thing. That's Jesus' MO, right? Amazingly, always does the right thing. The disciples keep being confused about what the right thing to do is. Uh, they're, sometimes they're doing the wrong thing, but mostly they're just confused about what to do. And these are all symptoms of discipleship gone wrong. And here's the really interesting thing, right? If Luke's gospel stopped here, we would think that this story was about this amazing rabbi called Jesus who tried to raise some people up and failed. Like humans just couldn't get it. It, just, it was too much. It didn't work. But thankfully, it's not the end of the story. We've got all of these pages still to go, right? Right? And they, at this point, couldn't get past their cultural expectations, their past expectations, their personal brokenness. Like all these things got in the way of them fully adopting the way of Jesus. So, how do we get from here, from from disciples at this stage, to the radical Jesus shaped disciples in the book of Acts and on? How do we become like Jesus? Like that's the, the question arising out of the context of this chapter. And that question, it amplifies why Jesus gives the warnings that we just read together at the end of this chapter. Each of these three people Jesus interacts with, he gives a warning to. Each one wants to follow Jesus, but something is getting in the way or is going to get in the way. And Jesus wants his followers to, to find life on his kingdom mission. That's where true fulfilled life is actually found. With the right kind of power. The cross shaped power that leads to the fruit that God is actually trying to produce. And these disciples, they are a lesson in disrupted discipleship. Where their, their discipleship has, has veered off course. It's taken a detour. And it's not fulfilling its potential. There. Ideas about power, about mission, about what's important, about what's valuable are confused by the ideas of their culture and their brokenness. And Jesus calls each of them to say no to something and to leave something behind. They need to put down their old ways to make space for Jesus' fresh vision of life. Otherwise, it will disrupt their discipleship. And this is a call that keeps on happening through the New Testament. Like Paul talks about, you need to put off the old self and put on like the new garments of the new life that Jesus has. Over and over again, this theme of exchange is happening. They need to know what to say no to, what to put off. And that's about knowing our priorities. Jesus, he gives these warnings to invite his followers, to invite us to examine our priorities. Each person is experiencing a tension between their value of wanting to follow Jesus and something else they value. And when push comes to shove, we will choose to protect and give energy to the thing we value the most. And Jesus has something radical to say about how to resolve that tension. So let's look at each of the warnings. So the first warning comes to someone who sounds pretty all in. They say, I will follow you wherever you go. What an amazing statement. That's the sort of statement you can only truly make when you're 16 years old at Youth Camp. Right? (laughs) Like get a bit older and you just become a bit more aware. Like, I don't know if I can honestly say that. Okay? What an amazing statement. I love to hear that. But Jesus is more concerned about the rest of their journey than their present intention. He sees a danger ahead, and it's a danger we can relate to. That's why we all laughed. And I love the holistic view Jesus takes because it's really easy for us to sense growth in the optimism of an intention in the moment. But that alone is how you end up with an inbox full of gym membership information, but not actually a healthy body, okay? We need to form good intentions. They're important, but they need to become the actions, habits, rhythms, character, and virtues of a Jesus-shaped life. And and this is where the symptoms of, of disrupted discipleship show up. Disrupted discipleship shows up when you can point to what God said, what he did, how you fell in love with Jesus, but not what he's saying and what he's doing and how you're falling more in love with your God right now. And Paul had this concern at the end of his life He said to Timothy, I am already being poured out like a drink offering, spending my life in a cross-shaped way. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. The whole journey matters. Hebrews chapter 2 warns us that we have a propensity to move away from the radical way of Jesus, because we are surrounded by a world that wants to squish itself into us. But the spirit is inside of us trying to push Jesus out through us into the world. It says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we don't drift away. Most of our failures of discipleship don't happen in a radical moment of rebellion. They happen through drifting. So dangerous. So what's the danger Jesus identifies here? Well, Jesus lives a life of radical faith, entrusting himself to the Father's care, to his provision. He doesn't have the comforts of a home to retreat to, to recharge and rest. In fact, Jesus' whole story from his birth onwards has been marked by not having uh, the sort of permanent home that would be normal in his culture and ours. He says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus' life is not one of comfort or convenience. Those things have been sacrificed for the sake of his mission. Now, Jesus still got recharged and he still rested, notably by withdrawing to be alone, to pray, and to spend time with his disciples. But he didn't do it in the way that was his cultural norm. He did it in a different countercultural way. And Jesus saw that this disciple's value, the one who said, I will follow you, their value for having that nest was gonna be a source of tension for them. They valued it too highly. It was gonna get in the way. That the lack of being able to pursue that value was going to cause unrest in their soul. Maybe they'd get frustrated and live a frustrated life. Maybe they'd get distracted by trying to nest build from the thing that would actually give them life. And maybe they'd stop following because that nest-shaped hole would just chew at them. And they would feel like, no, that's where I'm going to find fulfillment. I need to go and do that. I've got to tell you, like Anna and I have had more than a few run-ins with this tension. <laughs> right, right from being newly married, where we lived in a house where we invited loads of young disciples to live with us. And we gave up a restful home for a disrupted home <laughs> um, for the sake of the mission of Jesus. We had to make a choice. The, the, the mission of the kingdom and, and our, our cultural expectations butted heads. Giving up, um, like, pursuing like, a career that would enable us to build like, comfort around us. Like, we had to learn to sacrifice. Jesus had to challenge us on those things. And it was far from an easy choice. But tell you what, God came through. Despite all the way through the last 25 years of people saying to us, No, your priorities are out of whack. You need to, this is important. You need to prioritize this. You need to prioritize that. Every time we made a choice to prioritize the kingdom, do you know what we found to be true? That as we sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God did take care of all those other things. God provided. It works. Jesus is not making this stuff up. And somewhere in the formative stages of our priorities as we began life together, we had to keep making choices about what to sacrifice. And God taught us how to sacrifice. And it formed us. It changed us. And I can honestly say where we live now and how we got to where we live now did not have anything to do with how attractive it seemed to how good the schools were to how nice the neighborhood was all of those things like we thought through and prayed through one question god where's the mission you have us for and where's the right place to live for that mission and that that like god taught us that those are the right questions to ask and you know what? We still have a home and we have loads of nice things. We love, we live in a really like externally nice looking place. Okay. But Jesus comes first. And i tell you what, it looks nice externally. But after like a couple of years in our first house, as like people began knocking on the door and letting us into their lives. I mean, horrific stuff. Like neighbors, like eight months pregnant on the he just left. You know, just to hurry, So it can look nice, but it was the mission field Jesus actually had us. He had us there for a purpose. And so it's a decision we have to keep on making. This is Jesus' call to keep making that decision, to keep challenging ourselves, to push back on culture. Okay, the second person. The second person wants to follow Jesus, but there's something they want to take care of first. They say, first, let me go bury my father. Now, there's a bit of culture we need to be aware of here to pick up on what's going on. The father isn't dead yet. Okay? Jesus is not banning the son from going to the funeral. That's not what's happening. What, what is happening is the person wants to wait until their father has died and been buried and all the family duties have been taken care of and all the privileges of their new place in family life have been secured. You see, when the father died, this person would get their inheritance then they would have financial and relational security around them to make it easy to do all the sorts of other things they might want to do. They had three priorities. And in order, they were family life, security, and following Jesus. And it's not going to work out. It's going to disrupt their discipleship. It's going to make them unfulfilled in life and unfruitful on mission. It'll mean seeking life where true life, where kingdom life isn't. They have this internal confusion about where power actually lies. What's going to empower them to live a fulfilled, fruitful life? They think it's in the pursuit of security, that that is a priority, but they're wrong. Receiving security as a free gift from God is what actually frees us to the fulfilled, fruitful life. It's such a tragedy. Because the pursuit of security for security's sake is a never-ending journey. And even if you could complete it and get there, you know what you'd find? You would look back and be so sad at how much was wasted waiting to get to that point that doesn't actually change what you think it's going to. That was like uh, what Shelby said about J.D. Rockefeller last week. How much money is enough? Just a little bit more. It's a never-ending journey. It's a frustration. And Jesus tells this person, you need to let the dead bury their own dead. And that your priority should be to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. As a disciple of Jesus, the priority should always be the mission of Jesus. Jesus, his mission, his kingdom. The mission of financial security isn't something that needs to be a driving force for Jesus' disciples. Now, we do want to be wise stewards of our resources. We want to be shrewd and generous like we're going to see later on in Luke. So if you want to learn about that, keep coming back. We'll get there. But we have been set free from the anxiety of enough by God's care and provision. That doesn't need to be our story. There's all the difference in the world between being a slave to financial security and being freed to be a wise steward. The former is constantly anxious because their priorities are wrapped around uh, having their projects set by trying to seek more resources. But the wise steward is free to seek goals that actually are are kingdom-shaped. And you know what? It's going to fulfill them as well. For this person Jesus is talking to, they've got an unresolved tension in their life. Will they trust God for security and be free to be a steward or not? And Jesus warns them, but he warns them with an invitation. This life of not being free, of anxiety, of chasing security apart from God, that's death. And Jesus says, you can leave death to the dead people, to the people whose faith is dead, who are dead to the possibility of God's care, to the possibility of that freedom. So in the midst of the warning, he's saying, that does not need to be you. Life is available. You can leave that. You can leave death to the dead people. And that same possibility is true of you and me. Jesus lays the invitation before us to exchange the priority of security pursued out of anxiety for the priority of seeking the kingdom. And you know what? We will discover an empowered and fulfilled fullness of life and contentment. It's like Paul, a, a favourite verse, a key verse here. And this really came up praying this week, so I wonder if like there's a couple of people that maybe need to store this away and pray about this verse. In First Timothy, it says, "Godliness with contentment is great gain." It is it, so amazing that God latches on to the idea that we're actually built to expand, grow, and gain, but actually the path to the right kind of gain is godliness and contentment. So don't delay. That's the warning here. Don't delay because there's something you think you need to enable following Jesus' call. Follow him now. That's the invitation Jesus lays out to this person. Okay, the last person. For this last person, family and family expectations meant they gave a qualified yes to following Jesus. It's not a blanket ban on having a relationship with family. They want to say goodbye to family. Jesus is like, nope, that's that's not going to work out. Well, Jesus is actually drawing imagery here from Elijah and Elisha back in um, 1 Kings. It's really interesting that Elisha was called by Elijah and he wanted to do the same thing. He wanted to go say goodbye to his family. And Elijah was like, yeah, go do that and then come follow me. The difference is, in that story, Elisha then made a radical break with his old life to commit to following Elijah and being his disciple. He, actually, the plowing theme is in there. He, burnt, he broke up his plow, sacrificed the oxen, and, and sort of sacrificed it all to God. There's a definite image in there for the how-to of responding to Jesus' warning. Jesus can see that for this person, it's about more than saying goodbye. It's about not being able to make a break with that old life. And, and it becomes clear with the image that Jesus lays out. He says, no one, who puts a hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. It's a picture of trying to drive forwards while looking over your shoulder. Anyone done that? I mean, if I just try to walk across the stage now, looking backwards, I'm going to end up in your lap. Right? (laughs) You're quite far away. Maybe like flat on my face. Right? Because that's what happens. We veer off course. We drift. And this is critical to plowing. To have a healthy crop, you need straight, parallel furrows. So what Jesus is pointing at here is fruitfulness, that you will not have a fruitful life this way. This this person doesn't only want to say goodbye. They are having trouble fixing their eyes on a new priority and keeping them there. They're conflicted about what should have their attention, and that is going to cause confusion, and it is going to cause disrupted discipleship. It's going to cause those symptoms we laid out, those differences between Jesus and the disciples. Now, I thought this week about like, some of my own temptations to look back, things I've had to give a new value to, change my priority around. There were a lot to choose from. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you've got the same, because our life is a, is a constant learning of, of how to pursue Jesus and all along the way, I feel like stuff is falling by the wayside as I learn the true value of things in the kingdom. But there was one thing that uh, God really brought to mind, and it was when I was new to Jesus and my relationship with music. See, at that time, I was on a path to possibly becoming a classical musician, a performer. And um, I, I, yeah, I loved it. I was obsessed by it. I used to practice seven, eight hours a day. Um, and, uh, you yeah, I was just all about it. Um, and, and a whole bunch of other things as well. And I was trying to be all about Jesus, who had grabbed hold of my life. And all about music, and all about a few other things as well. All at the same time. Which, by the way, isn't that just like our culture? To say, you can have and be everything. Right? Because that's the lie that the enemy needs us to swallow. So that all the other little lies will work. If we can just dismantle that one, all of it—that's like the inoculation, like the shot we need to then be able to resist a whole bunch of other lies. We are bombarded with new possibilities, new values, new priorities all the time. I kind of—you know—who's a fan of uh, the Incredibles movie? A few of you. I think that's one of the best movies of all time. But uh, Syndrome, he, yeah, it's just like his words ringing in my ear, but twisted a little bit. Like, whenever things valuable, nothing is. And that's, that's the lie that we're being offered. It is, it's a possibility of finding more and more and more fulfillment of what we actually discover is there's less and less and less. Our, our culture constantly offering us new things. We have to actively resist that pressure by examining what we value, which is what Jesus is inviting. Anyway, so Jesus showed me I had an unhealthy relationship with music, with performance especially, so I stepped back, stopped, made a clean break. But for a while, I still carried the possibility of that goal, of that mission, of that priority, of fulfilling that dream I once had. It's like maybe, you know, maybe I need to put it down, but maybe I'll be able to pick it up again. And it took quite a while to stop looking back there, to, to stop loving the possibility of something that I had once dreamed about. I was just like the person Jesus is describing here. Committing to what Jesus was calling me to meant letting that dream die. And if I didn't stop looking back, I would keep failing to commit. By keeping that option open, I was not putting the eggs that were supposed to be in the Jesus basket in that basket. And so I'm just there, immobilized, juggling eggs. Like, it, it's kind of ridiculous. It was a priority of my old self, my old way of life before Jesus, and it was in the way. And I had to learn to just stop looking back at it. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a musician, nothing wrong with performing, if that's how God's calling you. But it was not how he was calling me. And I I needed to tune in to what Jesus was saying to me to understand that that was not a part of my kingdom mission. That was a part of my old self mission. And so I, eventually, you know, I I just um, I I know it's sort of latent in me, in my in the sort of memory of my story, my being. But I'm not looking forward to picking up the violin again and playing for you all. I'm free from that. But it took a process of Jesus working that out in me. The way of Jesus and his kingdom demands my priority. It demands my full attention. The warning Jesus gives to this person as he talks about plowing is really quite severe. He says the one who looks back, who's not free from their old self and their old priorities, is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. It's not just a matter of compromise. Jesus doesn't say, you know, if you keep looking back, you'll be 10% less fruitful in life. He says, no, you're not fit for service. The double-minded discipleship, disrupted discipleship is of no use. No use. That's not what we want. I mean, this is, I kind of prayed about, like, can I actually stand up and say this? I feel bad telling you this. I feel bad telling myself this, but it's what Jesus is saying. The warning is this start. Um, Robert Karras puts it beautifully this way. He says, following Jesus is not a task which is added to others like working a second job. It's everything. It is a solemn commitment which forces these disciples to be, to reorder all their other duties. Jesus wants our unqualified yes. And this is the common thread in each of these warnings. Each person faces a particular threat to their discipleship. In each case, the answer is a radical, unswerving commitment to putting Jesus first. An underlaid, comfort-sacrificing, leaving things behind pursuit of following Jesus wholeheartedly. That is the only antidote to disrupted discipleship. Now, there are going to be other things in our life, other valuable things in our life. But you know what we'll discover? That the things that fit under the umbrella of pursuing Jesus and his kingdom will be all the more beautiful, all the more valuable when they're integrated as part of God's story. That's where those things will thrive. And Jesus is clear with us. If we would be his disciples, Right at the heart of our life, the trunk of the tree has to be an all-in priority to follow Jesus, valued so highly that nothing will distract from it and nothing will come into conflict with it. Jesus says that we need a simplicity of priority to follow him. it's It's a challenge, it's a warning, but it's also an offer. You don't need a whole bunch of other priorities. You only need one. And this one will set you free. This one will help you thrive. The good news for us is that Jesus saw that this was not yet a reality. This simplicity of priority was not yet a reality in each of these people. But he didn't disqualify them. He didn't say no. Imagine if Jesus had done that. I'll follow you wherever you go. No, you won't. Get out of here. Right? That's the voice of the enemy. That's the voice of the enemy inside some of our hearts right now, telling us that our response to this message should be to feel bad, to feel unworthy, to feel ashamed, to want to go sit at the back and feel like I can't really worship this morning. But what Jesus did was to warn them and invite them. He showed them the path to life, and that's his attitude towards us now. So here are three questions arising from these three people that Jesus interacts with that we need to think about. Is there a priority for comfort, intention with the call to trust and follow Jesus in our life? Are you delaying following Jesus because you're waiting for some circumstance to line up? You don't need to. You can follow him now. Are you looking back at a past priority that's occupying value that should be in following Jesus? Jesus wants to set you free of it. If Jesus is pointing out and saying, you don't need that, you don't need that. You're carrying a weight that's just burdening you down. And this isn't about shame, this isn't about failure. This morning is about God calling you in, not calling you out. He's not pointing the finger. He's beckoning you towards him. You are worthy of Jesus' invitation. He wouldn't be speaking to your heart right now if he didn't value you and love you and want to draw close to you. And just like these people Jesus talked to, he has freedom and life to offer in the simplicity of priority. And he is inviting you to follow him. So let's pray. Jesus, we just still our hearts before you with such a radical call to forsake anything and follow you, to make you the highest priority. We confess we are not there. We are just like the people in the stories. But we love that you have something to speak to us because you actually want to do the work of undisrupting our discipleship, of simplifying our priorities, of teaching us how to follow you, of showing us what's really valuable. Lord, would you speak to our heart? Would you help to sink in that thing that we need to hear today and that we need to respond to?
0: Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.